You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. In today's podcast, we're going over the second half of our Q&A. So essentially, if you missed our last podcast, we went over like 45 minutes worth of questions that we've gotten from Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and just kind of answered them one by one. So if you want to listen to that one too, it doesn't really matter if you listen to that one first or you listen to this one first. So we'll just go ahead and jump right into the questions and answers. All right. From YouTube, Bruce asks, Bruce asks, do you think saddle or tree stand increases your chance of harvest? Yeah, I wasn't entirely sure if this was like, does a saddle or a tree stand give you better odds one versus the other, or do either of them give you an increased chance of harvest over just hunting on the ground? You said he's from Arizona, not too familiar with hunting in Arizona. If it's the former saddle versus tree stand, if you have a hardcore enough of a hunter, He's going to be able to make whatever he chooses work. That's kind of how I look at it. I think that for the average guy, if one system or the other allows you to get into a situation and make a hunt that you wouldn't have gotten to do with the other system, then yeah, that could absolutely increase your chance of harvest. Um, out West, I, I guess it would just depend, you know, getting elevated versus staying on the ground depends on a lot of things. Thermals, if you have a lot of elevation type of hunt ambush versus you know spot and stock or or what have you there's a lot of variables there i don't really know what to how to answer that yeah i think to me saddles are more versatile um, than a tree stand so i think if somebody spent the time to learn a saddle to its fullest abilities i think a saddle would be more beneficial in increasing your harvest than a tree stand would be so, you know, it's up in the wind. Like you said, a general hunter for the most part is going to be going to be the same, especially the, the people who wait till the week before season um, to really start practicing everything. That's probably going to be the, the same for both of them. You know, a saddle takes a lot more um, use and trial and error to to learn, basically. Go ahead and read the next one. My computer just kicked me out, so uh, I've lost my yeah. shit. Yeah, <laughs> Neo Nomad from YouTube wanted to know 
does swinging a broadhead around the saddle ropes require special attention so you don't cut yourself out of the tree? Um, so if you're using the, the movement basically where you're trying to get to your weak side, where you uh, take the bow and you move it up and cross it over the top of your bridge, I mean, usually it seems like for me, you have to tilt your bow up enough um, to make sure that the arrow clears the trunk of the tree, that by that time your broadhead is so far above your tether that it's really not an issue. Just kind of what I've noticed. Yeah, especially with a lot of people using a lower tree strap or tree tether height, um, you know, that really separates that distance considerably. For me, the biggest issue has been, like if I'm trimming a tree as I'm climbing, my tree saw and my lineman's belt. Because um, you may have your lineman's belt and you're trying to cut a tree limb. When you go through that tree limb, your saw is still going down. And I've nicked my, my lineman's belt a few times um, doing that. And to me, that's the benefit of using rope over webbing in a saddle is that you don't have that tear issue that can occur with webbing when under load compared to with rope. Uh, BJJ Joe from YouTube wants to know what the weight difference is between a complete saddle setup and a complete tree stand setup. Uh, I think assuming that everything else is the same, you know, same list of gear inside the pack, same climbing method then ultimately the overall weight difference for my setups comes down to like, I think seven or eight pounds with my lone wolf assault versus my Kestrel. Yeah. That's especially when looking at hang on tree stands, you know, assuming everything climbing methods, the same, you look at the weight of the tree stand, the weight of the safety harness and the weight of the strap to attach a safety harness compared to the entire weight of the saddle and the platform. Right. And, you're going to come out lighter with a saddle and a platform, whether it's a strap on platform or whether it's, or whether it's a ring of steps or a platform, you're going to come out lighter with a saddle where you kind of get close as if you compare a lightweight climbing tree stand to a complete saddle system with sticks. But then you got to look at the versatility of the saddle over that um, climbing tree stand. So to me, obviously it goes to the saddle just because it's more versatile. So from Iowa, I'm guessing it's Iowa Barkwood on YouTube with the saddle and some of the contoured, contorted, contorted, contorted positions. Does it affect compound bow accuracy? Do you have issues getting picked off having move around the tree versus standing and turning in place on a stand? Um, so first part of that question, do the contorted positions affect compound bow accuracy? Uh, I would say no, based on my shooting. And the reason is if you look at any of those contorted positions, what you're basically doing is you're separating the bottom half of your body from the top half of your body. And the bottom half of your body is in whatever position that it needs to basically give you a solid uh, connection. Maybe it's like one step, another step in the bark of the tree. You got like a, a triangle of support on your lower body, but then your upper body is just, you know, basically in whatever position it needs to be to give you good, uh, T form to be able to shoot a bow. So if you're shooting a five yard shot, 20 feet up in the tree, you're going to have your torso almost horizontal to the ground. Um, and it's just, you know, compare that to the position you get to standing in a tree stand, you might be able to get close to that position with the top part of your spine, but the bottom part of your spine above your hips is going to be closer to vertical just because you don't really have that much spinal mobility. At least most people don't. So a lot of times you hear about guys shooting higher out of a tree stand than they do with a saddle. 
I think a lot of that is because they don't have necessarily the same upper body form that they do when they're standing on flat ground. So that adjusts how they're anchoring and how they're looking through their peep sight. Um, so I definitely think that you can get a little bit better form and therefore better uh, shooting with the saddle. Um, with the other part of the question, do you have issues getting picked off, having to move around the tree uh, versus standing and turning in place on a stand? Um, so, I mean, typically for me, I'll, whatever I'm using, I'm setting it up so that ideally I don't have to move that much. I'm not just using the 360 degree shooting of a saddle as an excuse to just haphazardly set up on whatever side of the tree <laughs> I want. Um, there's, there's always a method to the madness. Um, so that being said, typically if I can hear something coming before I see it, which happens fairly often, I will get into whatever position I need to shoot prior to actually seeing the deer, um, or maybe a squirrel or whatever, but at least you're in a position to be able to draw back and shoot. Um, you do have to practice if, you know, moving to your wrong hand side, if that's, you know, something that you intend on being able to shoot to just because you do have more movement moving around an entire tree, uh, than you do just standing in place on a platform. Um, and I mean, ultimately it just comes down to your particular setup. Are you going to have to move to that side of the tree or is all of your stuff going to happen, you know, between, you know, 10 o'clock and, and four o'clock or whatever. Yeah, I think with a compound bow um, affecting accuracy, I've never had an issue with the saddle affecting accuracy with the compound. Now, with a traditional bow, yes, um, because sometimes it's hard to get to full expansion. So all the way back to your draw length if you're not using a clicker um, because you'll have a tendency to short draw the bow, especially if you're trying to shoot over the bridge or kind of to your weak side. You'll really have that issue where you won't expand as much as you need to. Um, so I've seen it affect accuracy on traditional bow, but not on a compound bow. And I've been saddle hunting for uh, 13 years now, and I can't think of any time I've ever really been picked off moving into position on a deer. Um, typically, by the time the deer gets into range, I'm already in position uh, compared to waiting for that deer to come in range and then move into position as the last second. If the deer sneaks up on me and I don't think I can get turn and get into position to shoot that deer you know a lot of times i'll just let that deer walk um you know especially if i'm doe hunting you know i'll just i'll just let that deer go versus trying to risk moving around and you know possibly getting picked off what if it's a 200 incher um well sometimes you gotta let them walk but <laughs> i've 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 let one of my target deer walk when i was back in virginia because i heard a deer coming i saw the deer i was like oh i don't know what that deer is so we're going to let it get closer. And then when I realized that's the deer I wanted to shoot, he was about three yards from the base of my tree. And I was like, well, there he goes. Cause he walked from my strong side to my weak side. So I just, mm. I let him yeah, walk. That's a bit. tough, the only really tough situation that I had was, uh, I was using a four wild edge steps as my platform. So basically a step ring of steps style. Uh, and I had a deer come in on basically almost directly behind me. So like my six o'clock. So it wasn't that big of a deal. I just did a little drop step and I was ready to shoot. And then it turned around, um, to go to my weak side. So I was like, well, do I go, do I turn back around, go over the bridge or do I just keep backing around the tree to, to get to that side? Well, the problem is I had a camera arm too. So I couldn't back step anymore because the camera arm was in the way and I wanted to get it on film. So I had to do some weird contortions and all of a sudden the deer, you know, turned again, went directly to the base of my tree, started standing or sniffing my climbing sticks. And it basically went 
entirely around the tree in multiple different directions. And it was kind of a mess. Um, in that situation, maybe staying on a platform could have been easier. Uh, but then at the same time too, most of that deer's walking, if I was in a hang on stand would have been behind the tree. So it still would have been kind of tough in its own right. The, I think moral of that story is if you're going to use a, a camera arm and try to get your hunts on film, you can expect to have some issues at some point. Yep. That is exactly right. That's why I don't film my hunts. Um, from YouTube, Vital Point asks, why are saddles so expensive? It seems like they should be much less than a tree stand. That is a good question. Um, basically, they're made in a very, the Kestrel, I'm speaking for the Kestrel. The Kestrel is made in a very small shop in the United States in Oregon. And not only, it doesn't require necessarily a, a ton of material, but it requires a ton of labor in sewing. So you have basically eight pieces of Cordura fabric that have to be sewn together, binded together. And then you have to, you have to cut all that material out, obviously, which is time. And then by the time you get all of the webbing sewn on there, um, the eyes form, the eyes sewn through there. So there's a lot of time that those are actually spent on a sewing machine being sewed. Um, and then obviously, you know, you got to cover in there some of your insurance and overhead and stuff like that. So... Unfortunately, they're not cheap. Um, the mesh kestrel will be cheaper. Um, I do not have an exact price on that yet, but I know it will be cheaper. Yeah. Whenever I get that question, I always kind of go back to, well, it probably will be cheaper once somebody finally makes a, a saddle and has it manufactured in China. I mean, exactly. it's like small volume in the U.S., there's no way around it. It's just gonna, the labor cost is, is tough to compete with. And it's, it's good labor too. It's not like just picking people up off the street and just throwing them into the assembly line. Um, so if you look at most of the freebie harnesses that come with tree stands, I'm assuming they're all for the most part manufactured overseas. Um, probably some of it is at least semi auto, semi automated. Um, if you look at something like the lone wolf alpha tech harness, which I would assume is probably made in the U S I'm not hundred percent sure, but that one's 150 bucks. If you want like a, a nice tree stand harness, the hunter safety system ones, I think the one that I bought a couple of years ago was like 80 bucks. You know, it's like you can get variants of quality and anytime you drop the volume way down now, all of a sudden all of that development work and all that insurance cost needs to be spread over the, the cost of the product as well. The company needs to recoup that stuff. And if you're not selling, as many because your market is smaller than that part of it is going to be larger as well. Uh, he also asked on YouTube, this is vital point again, how are you getting 30 feet with your wild edge steps? Uh, so you have to use some type of extended spacing basically. So you're not putting a step at every um, foothold that you would want. You're basically putting one wild edge step at waist height and then you're putting the second one at uh, overhead. So for me, it'd be like seven foot. Um, and then basically you're using either, uh, what would be called like the cane method, which is like, a, a method where you use a riggers belt in, uh, instead of a lineman's belt, or you're using the aider method in wild edge cells, they're aider. So you can go on YouTube, uh, look up the wild edge YouTube channel, and they'll have plenty of videos on their aider actually being used. And it basically just gives you an intermediate step. So when you have those steps spaced out, one at hip height, one overhead, you can have that aider basically spacing the gap between your hip and the ground. Um, so you can actually 
get your foot up. The other thing I've been able to, to do too is when I have those steps spaced out like that, uh, I can throw my lineman's belt around the tree, kind of have it loose, and then just kind of throw that lineman's belt up as high as I can. And then I can just kind of hang from that top step and just kind of walk up the tree. Um, just kind of hold my body out away from the tree until I get onto that waist level step. And then I pull myself close, tighten the lineman's belt, attach the next step directly overhead, and then loosen up the lineman's belt a little bit, flip that lineman's belt up high. Again, just hang from that top step and walk up the tree until I'm onto that waist level step and just repeat that all the way up. Um, and so that gets me to what, 28 feet. And then the platform would be two feet above that. So essentially you're just increasing your spacing through the cane method or through an aider. Yep. All right. A lot of people want to know when's the next elk hunt. Um, next year we're going to be going back out to either Colorado or Wyoming. Um, a couple of the guys that I go with, have points for Wyoming. I have a couple points for Wyoming. So the question is going to be, do we want to go to Wyoming or do we want to go back to old reliable, the place that we've gone the last couple of times to Colorado. Now that we know it basically with two years experience of boots on the ground and try to get it done, uh, that way. I don't think the elk hunting is fantastic. I think the mule deer hunting is uh, a lot better proportionately in that particular area. Uh, so you just kind of got to balance the, you know, maybe the elk hunting is better in Wyoming, but we're going in completely blind. So we'll see, but it'll most likely be next year for sure. Steve from YouTube wants to know, how do you pack extra clothing to the tree when saddle hunting? Uh, either inside the pack or lashed to the outside of the pack, depending on how much I'm carrying. Yeah, I use a simple, um, I don't even remember, I did a YouTube video on them, what they're called now. It's basically a bungee cord. I'll roll my clothes up, bungee cord them together, and then I'll either attach them to my little uh, sling pack or to my climbing sticks basically and then carry them in that way mm -hmm. Brian from YouTube thinking about doing a rock harness and sit drag but maybe a kestrel is it worth the money um, I think you might be too biased to answer this question I concur <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never used a, a sit drag and rock harness so I, I couldn't tell you that yeah. from that aspect anyways yeah so I've I've used both and basically the difference is to me, um, number one, the Lyman's loops with the rock harness, your DIY and the Lyman's loops, you take a little bit of risk there. Um, since they're not tight to your hip, they're a little bit harder to find. So I'd find myself constantly, you know, double and triple checking to make sure that I actually had the carabiner in the Lyman's loop. Um, whereas with the Kestrel, I mean, I still double check, but 99.99% .99 of the time, if I feel the carabiner go into the loop on the side of my hip, it's actually in there. So that's one thing. Uh, the other thing with the rock harness is that since you got the blade loop in the center, it makes it a little bit harder to go to the bathroom. The front of the Kestrel is a little bit more clear. You don't have that issue. Um, the sit drag, since it's kind of like a separate piece as compared to the rock harness, it's, if you ever put slack in the tether, it kind of falls down the backside of your thighs. So for example, if I was using a platform while I'm actually sitting in the saddle, sitting in the sit drag, everything would be totally fine. If I ever wanted to kind of stand up and spin 180 degrees to shoot to my weak side, then that sit drag would kind of fall down, um, the backside of my thighs. And I'd have to kind of reset it before I would actually put my weight back in the saddle. Whereas with the Kestrel, obviously it's just like an extension of your body. Once you got it set up and you, you got the saddle on, you don't have to worry about it anymore. So for me, I think it's worth the, the extra money, but you got to answer that one for yourself too. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, I don't necessarily consider a sit drag a saddle because it's not designed that way. Um, like you said, it's lacking the lineman's loop, the leg straps, and a waist buckle to hold it all there. Um, so safety-wise, there's a lot compromised on it. All right, so the next question. A lot of people want to know where can they buy a bow building kit like the one you use to build your um, bamboo eye reflex deflex longbow? Um, so the kit that I bought was from eBay. I'm like 99% sure the person's name was like Legolas Bows or something like that. I've tried checking multiple times and I haven't found anything that was exactly like it. The kit that I bought basically had a, a strip of bamboo and it had a strip of uh, pre-tapered ipe. So it was pre-tapered with something like 100 pounds. So it was way thicker than you needed it to be, but at least it had somewhat of a pre-taper there in place. So all you had to really do was set the stuff up in a form that you had to build, uh, glue them together, and then tiller, uh, which the tillering took by far the longest amount of time out of that entire process. Um, third, or Three Rivers Archery has some kits that you can put together. I haven't seen the exact combination of woods that I used in my bow. Uh, there's another place, I think, called Tenbrook Archery, if I'm remembering that right. Uh, I actually bought a kit from them. The difference between the kit that I bought from them and the one I bought originally was this one was not pre-tapered. So I got a piece of bamboo for the backing, and then I got a basically like a, a half-inch thick by like a two-inch wide by 72-inch piece of ipe. So in order to get that ready to glue, I had to do my own pre-tapering and I went and rented some time at a local wood shop and did that on a, a table saw and a bandsaw. And so you can do it that way if you have the uh, access to the tools. If you wanted to start and do all hand tools, starting from that much wood, you're going to be spending a lot of time on the, the tillering process. Uh, just be aware of that. So you might be willing to compromise what woods you're willing to do just to get a kit that's going to be a little bit more conducive to making a bow, uh, particularly if it's your first one. Yeah, you might also check um, Pine Hollow longbows. Uh, Mike Yancey, or yeah, Mike Yancey used to own it. Um, he's in Northwest Arkansas. I know he used to have some kits like that back when I was did a lot of self bow stuff. So I might check with him. Stevie from YouTube wants to know: Can you use a Ropeman one with eight millimeter cord? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. So I think it's they're rated at 10 millimeter, right? Yeah, the Rope Man 1, 11. I believe, is 10 to 13 millimeter. And the Rope Man 2 is 8 to 13, so it's got a larger range. Uh, the difference between the Rope Man 1 and the 2 is how they actually squeeze down on the rope. The cams have a different design. Um, if you, It's going to be hard to explain, but basically the Rope Man 1 has larger teeth uh, whereas the Rope Man 2 has these little micro teeth that kind of bite into the sheath. So a Rope Man 2 is a lot more critical of which rope you use because if you use the wrong kind of rope with a Rope Man 2, it'll really tear up the sheath and uh, make it all fuzzy really fast. Uh, with the Rope Man 1, it's a little bit nicer of a an ascender, a little bit easier to use in my opinion, uh, works with more ropes uh, for the sheath, but it has to work with a larger rope. Uh, otherwise, you risk that rope slipping through the cam. So I have, I think, read some people on the forums using smaller rope, like 9 or 10 millimeter rope, the Rope Man one, but I would not recommend it. I haven't used them a whole lot, so glad you have to field that question because I, I obviously, if I would just go by whatever the manufacturer recommended. 
All right, from Hometown Hunting on YouTube. What is a tree selection like when saddle hunting? Size, thickness, etc. Um, I mean, there's there's really not a lot of difference for me in tree selection of a saddle versus a, a hang-on. I mean, pretty much any tree that I would want to put a saddle in, I could probably force a hang-on into and vice versa. Um, so, I mean, you can basically just treat it however you want. And the more you the more you saddle hunt or the more you hunt with whatever type of method you're using, the more you're going to tend to favor a certain type of tree, a certain size of tree. Um, so it's really dependent on the hunter for the most part. Um, you know, like you said, any, pretty much any tree that you can saddle hunt from, you can hang, put a hang on in for that matter. You know, so you're going to, you're going to develop a preference for size, thickness, diameter, whatever you want to call it. You're going to, tend to gravitate towards a specific tree or a specific setup where there may be a tree, you know, two feet behind you that you can kind of lean back against or something like that. Yeah. I mean, for me, sometimes it just comes down to the right tree is in the right spot and whatever it looks like, you're going to have to force yourself to get into it. Um, whereas otherwise sometimes you got a little bit more options. Uh, the one thing to mention though, that I did forget was that if you're hunting evergreens, you can stick a saddle in them, but you're not going to be able to use all the advantages of a saddle you're basically going to be you know just hunting off that one side unless you clear out a ton of limbs yeah if you have to cut a a hole into the tree to put a saddle in that's probably the time where you're going to want to use a hang on stand over a saddle so from your your mesh kestrel video the 64 dollars question is when will the mesh kestrel be available it is available right now on the arrowhunter.us website. It was released about uh, the 4th of July, and it's actually called the Kite, K-I-T-E, not the Mesh Kestrel as we've been calling it. They've graciously given us one to do a giveaway with here on the uh, podcast, so keep an eye out for that. We're going to be doing a giveaway for one of those um, here soon. Uh, I saw updates to the Lyman's Belt posted on their Facebook page. Do you know if those are going to be implemented? Yes, they will be. Have you tried it out at all? It looks like it's yes. kind of like a rope version of an ascender, kind of. Basically, that's what it is. It use it's similar to if you can think back to the evolution where we use the paw as the um, ability to adjust the bridge. It's kind of the same concept, but moved to the lineman's belt. Okay. So it's kind of a replacement for rope man one through. Um, ropes and webbing basically instead of using a mechanical device okay so a few people want to know what's the updates on the diy quivalizer uh other than the fact that it just looks goofy <laughs> uh, i mean it it works uh it works totally fine uh, some people asked if it was if you're able to use it in like a saddle uh or a tree stand the answer is yes uh, if you're doing the over the bridge type of thing if you got an arrow knocked, you already got to tilt your bow up in the air anyway to get the arrow to clear the trunk of the tree. So having that extra long stabilizer doesn't really uh, give you that much of an extra impact. Um, what it seems like for walking is that it's easier for me to put the bow over my shoulders and basically be able to walk. So like if I have, uh, if I set the bow on the top of my shoulders and I have the stabilizer sticking out in front of me on one side of my neck and then my sight housing is sticking off on the other side of my neck. It seems to actually ride there pretty well because of that extra balance, everything pulling it forward. It doesn't want to fall off the backside of your, your shoulders. So that's kind of nice. Um, 
It doesn't work obviously as well if you're going to use like a shoulder strap, just because that extra long quiver is basically hanging down in the grass. Shooting wise and stability wise, it kind of depends on your setup. Um, my bows, I found I can hold pretty steady without much extra stabilizers attached. So it's probably more than I need. So when I shoot, it just, you know, tilts downward more. Um, I haven't noticed a ton of difference in the overall uh, ability for me to hold steady. It's probably a little bit, I don't shoot long enough range. I don't think where I would start to notice a, a difference in that pin float between using that extra long stabilizer of the quivalizer knockoff versus like an actual just long stabilizer. And, uh, let's, yeah. let's see where there are any, I haven't shot it that much in wind, um, knocking a second arrow. So normally you'd have to pull your arrow out of a quiver, whether it's on the left side of your, or your other side of your bow or on the tree, uh, pull it around the bow and knock it to be able to shoot a second arrow. Whereas with the, the equivalizer, since the arrows are on the same side of the bow as your rest, all you got to do is tilt the bow and you just grab your second arrow, move it four inches until it's sitting on the rest, knock it, and then you're ready to draw back and shoot again. So I actually think with like five minutes of practice, you'll find that it's easier to get a second shot off with that type of a quiver. And if you're pushing a bow through the grass or whatever, like spot and stock, which I don't do a whole lot of, you're keeping everything out of the grass. Your sight pins are out of the grass. Your uh, rest is out of the grass and your arrows are now out of the grass. You're not basically burying your quiver into the, the ground to be able to push your bow along. So there's definitely some advantages to it for the right setup. Yeah, I think it's an interesting concept, and this is kind of how this whole thing spawned. I know me and you were talking about it um, off the podcast or text message and stuff about, you know, trying it out and seeing, and that's kind of what spurred this whole DIY equivalizer up. So it's interesting to see how it's coming along and if you're going to continue to use it or if you're going to go back to a traditional quiver setup. So a question we get a lot is just kind of how high can you get with X setup that may be a millennium tree stand with lone wolf sticks or with muddy sticks and a, a lone wolf tree stand. Um, so kind of touch on that a little bit. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, if you know what the, the spacing is of the, the stick, like what the, your, your step spacing is, say it's 24 inches or whatever, and you're using four sticks, you get 24 times four. And then if you know what your spacing is between the sticks, say it's 25 inches, you multiply that by the number of gaps you have. And you just add that all up. You can just do it, you know, on your cell phone calculator or whatever. And that will give you a really quick idea of how high you can get with any particular setup, any number of sticks. It's really hard for me to know what, um, what somebody's setup is going to be because they might have a different, you know, inter stick spacing than I would. So the easiest way to find out what it is for yourself is just, just add up all those, those values for how many sticks you want to use and you'll get your height. That's the biggest factor is the interest stick spacing. Um, and what I recommend is just take two climbing sticks out to a tree, put up the first one, stand on it, set your stack one, and then measure that spacing. Do that six or eight times and you're going to get an average of what you like step spacing wise or stick spacing wise. So that will give you that basically interest step or interest stick spacing distance. And then that's going to be able to calculate how high you're going to reach with your setup. Because for the most part, you're... Your tree stand is not going to matter 
because your platform for your tree stand, your platform for your saddle, they're all going to be about the same distance from that top stick. It's a distance in between each stick, whether you're using three sticks or four sticks, five sticks, however many sticks. Yep. Appalachian on the hunt asks over on YouTube, if hunting in warm weather were not an issue, would you still pick the mesh over the original Kestrel? He has an original Kestrel and doesn't see himself changing, but still interested in the mesh for early season Kentucky. Um, I would, I guess I would say it depends more on what buckles you want for a lot of people. Unless you're hunting in really hot weather. It's like, if you're hunting in really hot weather, yeah, go with the mesh. Like you'll be glad you did. But if you're, if it's not that big of an issue, if you're not hunting, if you're hunting in cool weather, more often than you're hunting in sweaty weather, I would say it probably just comes down to, do you want, do you mind stepping through leg loops and feeding a a buckle through, um, that's not a quick release that'll take you an extra 10 seconds, or do you prefer to have the quick releases? I know some guys like to attach the quick release on the waist buckle, and then they attach the quick releases behind their legs and just walk in with a saddle like that. So it's not affecting how they walk. Then once they get to the tree, they'll unclip the quick releases and clip them back onto their legs. Um, I would say that's probably the, the bigger thing for me. It's kind of what buckles you would want, unless you're hunting in really hot the, weather. I think the weight, um, you know, obviously the mesh kestrel is going to be a lot lighter because we did use different buckles and different materials. Um, you know, d- when we developed it, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I can never remember a time saddle hunting outside of a trophy line tree saddle where I thought my kestrel was just too hot wearing. Um, it's such a small piece of fabric on your butt. Um, I've never really had a time where I thought, okay, my butt is sweating specifically because of my Kestrel. So to me, the mesh, it's more about um, going to the, the ultralight side where we went to a lighter fabric, lighter buckles, um, lighter waist buckle as well. Um, so that's the biggest thing. And then like Garrett mentioned, the buckles, um, the quick release. So the leg buckles are still kind of technically a quick release. They're more of a feed through. So they'll take a, a second or two longer. Um, it's kind of a square buckle. I can't think of the name of them off the top of my head. And then the waist buckles feed through. So it's going to take you a little longer to put it on, or if you don't have issues stepping through, like Garrett mentioned. Yeah. I usually just step through. I do too, for the most part. I don't ever really use them. Uh, another question. This is from Maine snowman 5509 Lucas, I guess. Um, how come the, on the Kestrel, the camo material is concealed against your body, leaving the gray exposed? It seems like it's manufactured backwards. So we offer, I say we, they offer three colors for the Kestrel. They offer a gray and olive green and then the camouflage. Um, and you can pick your color. And basically what that means is that will be the color that is exposed to the outside. Um, so what they do is when they sew that, because it's eight, pieces of Cordura fabric, they go ahead and sew most of them because the two popular colors I believe are gray and camo. They bind those two together. So then if somebody picks a gray one, they sew the gray to the outside. If somebody sews a camo in, they sew the camo to the inside. So just the opposite, like my, my Kestrel is a gray Kestrel. The camo fabric is on the inside. Um, it's just kind of the way it's made because that saves down on it makes them allows them to make the seat pattern in a larger bulk unit, and then when people pick gray or green or gray or camo, it just picks what side of the fabric goes to the outside compared to the inside. Mm-hmm. So that's why you'll see it on the inside with the camo. 
from YouTube. Oscar wants to know, where did you get the camo on your sticks? Uh, those are stealth strips. You can get them from stealthoutdoors.com. I've been using them forever on pretty much all my sticks and a lot of my other accessories. Yeah, pretty much everything. I'm surprised <laughs> you don't have camouflage just stuck, made camo out of it yet. Uh, from YouTube, Luke wants to know, do you use a new weather history site? Um, so a couple of years ago when I uploaded a video on public land scouting, I talked about uh, a wind finder site where basically you could look up the weather history on kind of a radar style graph and see for a given month what the predominant wind direction statistically are. Um, I still, that website has changed a little bit and I haven't been on it super recently to know if it's still available. As far as I'm aware, that um, option is still available. Um, I also use um, Scout Look Weather and I use um, Weather Underground. Those are kind of my, my two main real-time apps, um, but I haven't really had the need to check for historical data just because I already have it all recorded. Um, so if that's, if that wind finder site is down and it might be harder to navigate, um, than I made it look like in the video, um, I'll, I'll just have to find something new to be able to use. And I'll probably include that in a new video. David from YouTube wants to know what your arrow length is and what your total weight is. He doesn't specify whether it's for the compound or for the trad bow, um, for compound, I think I'm probably settled on for this year, 28 inch arrows, uh, 560 grains. I'm not hunting out West this year. And for the most part, what I'm using my compound for is going to be Metro hunts where they mandates a 20 yard maximum. So I am totally fine with the trajectory at 560 grains. In fact, I could probably go heavier and still be totally happy with it. So, um, I'm probably going to leave it at that for now. When I go out west next year, I might change it, might drop down a little bit, but most likely I'm going to stick over 500 grains in that 28-inch arrow length. Uh, for trad, I like to stay around the 10-grain the per pound mark. So for me, that's around 500 grains. Yeah, I'm pretty close to saying trad right now. I have no idea. I've got like seven, eight different brands of arrows, links, and spines that I'm shooting. Um I still can't get one to separate from the rest as to which one's better. Um, and for the compound bow, I'm shooting right around that 500 grain mark. Um, I'm going to try to go heavier and more front of center. But we got Total Archery Challenge coming up next month, so I'm I'm going to wait till after that. Um, hopefully trash all my current arrows. That gives me a reason to buy new ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Total Archery Challenge is like, do you, do you go out there with your hunting setup to see how good you are and end up losing a lot of arrows because your trajectory sucks? Or it's like, do you, do you build a Total Archery Challenge-specific arrow that will allow you to shoot better scores at the Total Archery Challenge, but then you got to change it back to your hunting setup? <laughs> I just go out there with what I got, <laughs> fling arrows. We get it. We typically get out of the. Uh, we don't typically aim for vitals. It's like okay, who can shoot it in the head at sixty-four <laughs> yards or whatever. So that's why arrows end up broken and missing. Uh, from YouTube, Adam wants to know: Will an over-the-center buckle work exactly like a boat buckle? So a boat buckle is actually a, a brand. It is a type of over-center buckle. There's a few different types of over-center buckles and. Over-center buckle is just a generic term for the type of buckle that basically uses leverage to uh, use the, the buckle to cam over itself in a sense so that you can get a strap over-tightened beyond what you'd be able to tighten it just by hand. Uh, and the boat buckle is a type of that. So 
if you see guys with their, their boats and their trailers, I mean, that's obviously where they get the name. They do a lot of Marine stuff. Uh, they use the straps on the back of their boats to mount to the trailer and they'll hand tighten them down and just basically take that handle and cam it over to get those straps nice and tight. Um, for hunting, the advantage that it serves for like a camera arm is that it's uh, dead silent versus a ratchet. So you might not get as much of a, an over tightening effect as you get with a ratchet strap, but for something like a camera arm, you don't really need to get it as tight with a, as you would with a ratchet strap, particularly if you're using a low stretch strap like polyester or uh, polypropylene. I don't have any experience with them. I had an old, old uh, summit tree stand that used one and I replaced it very quickly because I just did not like the over the center style buckles personally. So I know you really like them. Um, so it's really dependent on the person. Try them, see if you like them. From YouTube, uh, Das wants to know, how do you like the Primo's rocker vest? On mine, the back support poked through the top. If you have any tips on preventing that, let him know. So it's kind of funny. I never had any issues with it until after you said that comment, and then I noticed that on mine, the leg support on the seat was starting to pop through. The only thing that I can think of to help prevent that from happening any further would be to like sew an extra piece of Cordura fabric on it. Um, I don't really know how else to, to prevent it. But other than that, I really love the vest. Uh, it's really comfortable, especially given the fact that it doesn't actually have a pad. It's just kind of like a Crazy Creek chair type of design built into a turkey vest, and it's got tons of storage. Jacob from YouTube wants to know what turkey calls you were using. I pretty much, for this whole year, used the uh, calls from callingallturkeys.com, uh, which Shane Simpson is the owner of. The call that I used in the video that I uploaded was the three read batwing style. Um, I really liked that call. And in fact, I ordered like six more of them when he put them on clearance this Order. year. So I got a ton <laughs> of those calls. Um, and he actually, he also released some of his own calls called the prodigy series, uh, a little bit different latex, uh, tension than the, the white calls. His are a red tape. That's how you differentiate them. Um, and I like those ones as well. Um, SRT junkie, uh, this looks more like a statement, a <laughs> question, dude, get a triple lock carabiner. You're going to get someone else killed. I guess he's referencing the carabiners on a saddle. Maybe. Um, he, I did a DIY lineman's belt video. Uh, uh, so I used twist lock carabiners for one of my carabiners and the other one I used a, a wire gate carabiner. Um, and th the funny thing is I actually did reference like Westgate or Westbur, all their arborist, um, basically standards and like this is the type of carabiner you'd want to use if you're going to follow those standards i've seen videos of triple lock carabiners opening up it can be done it's not very likely i mean ultimately you're just trying to build redundancies into the the system and try and prevent things from from happening when i'm climbing a tree i mean i'm basically fully focused on climbing the tree and everything that's going on um i'm not trying to do some other task while you know the carabiners are rubbing against something or twisting and turning. And I don't think for me, I'm personally comfortable using like twist lock carabiners or like the, you know, auto locking ones that the, the Kestrel comes with. Yeah. I think any type of locking carabiner to auto locking carabiner is fine. I don't necessarily think you need a triple locking carabiner. It gets kind of difficult when you start wearing gloves and it's, yeah. you know, negative degrees and you're trying to deal with all that. That's, 
That just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. Well, and the, the fact too that not one single hunting-based company uses them should say something about how uh, necessary they are. Right. So from YouTube, looks like Ringtail. How do you like the alpaca socks? Do you like them better than Merino? Um, they're nice and fluffy. I like my alpaca <laughs> socks are my favorite socks uh, by far for just lounging around the house in the wintertime when it's nice and cool. Um, they're like wearing slippers. They're really comfortable and warm. I do like them also on the hunts. Um, apart from like wearing an alpaca sock on one foot and a merino sock on the other foot, it's tough to really tell which is better. They're both wearing fine for me. Uh, the last merino socks that I've worn, I had like three pairs and I basically got like two or three years of use out of them before they finally wore holes in them. But I mean, alpaca compared to merino, the fibers are hollow versus merino. So there's a few theoretical advantages to alpaca. One, it's supposed to be able to keep your, um, your body a little bit warmer for the same amount of fibers because of that hollow fiber construction. Um, and then it's also supposed to dry quicker. I haven't really tested that yet. I suppose the way you could test that would be to wash both of them and then uh, see which one dries faster. But then of course you need the same exact construction and same thickness and that gets kind of hard to do. I did also, uh, just a couple days ago, order a, an alpaca quarter zip uh, top. So it's like a blend of 70% alpaca, 30% merino wool in a quarter zip. So, uh, that one is from, I'm not hundred percent sure how to pronounce it. It's, it's about like athlete without the A, like fleet. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure that's probably not being pronounced right, but I love the alpaca enough in the socks that I really wanted to try it out with the shirt. So when I get that, uh, that base layer shirt in, I'll probably do some type of test compared to my first light and just see like how quickly they dry out. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I think the socks, the interesting way to test it would be basically, uh, just put one on each foot, get your feet wet and then walk around and kind of just basically go off of, you know, how did it, did it feel like it dried quicker? Did get your foot wet and then put it in your shoe to kind of figure out which one dried quicker Right. Or just a little bit of moisture on them. Or get them soaked and then it would need to be cold out, but you could get them soaked on each foot and then just see which one gets cold faster. Right. The challenge is my alpaca socks are really fluffy, whereas the merino ones I have have some, some bandex uh, sewn into them and they're a little bit tighter on the foot and they don't have quite the same amount of loft. So it's hard to make an apples to apples comparison. Yeah. So Steve from YouTube wants to know, um, he can't make sense of the Alps Commander pack frame and bag. If you leave it at camp and have an animal down, do you head back to camp to get your frame and then go back and pack the animal out? I feel that I would want the frame with me at all times. He's new to this and he's trying to learn. So that's basically what I've done in the past. That's what I did last year at my mule deer. I shot the, the deer with the pack frame back at camp. Uh, and then quartered the animal out where I shot it. And then luckily I had a, a couple of the guys I was with in the same area and we all just kind of slung a quarter or a game bag over our shoulders and just walked back down hill to camp. And then once at camp, we loaded the meat onto the frame uh, and then I walked back down to the truck in one trip. So basically if I were to say I was solo, yeah, I would probably um, walk back down to camp, get that pack frame after all the meat was in the bags uh, then walk back to the kill site and walk back. So if you were hunting really deep in, like we're always within, you know, a couple miles of camp. If for some reason I was 
five miles away from where my pack frame was, that would suck because it's an extra, you know, 10 miles round trip to get that pack frame back at the, back to the animal. So I guess it works for me in the way that we hunt, but there's probably some scenarios where you'd probably want to have, you know, an expandable type pack. Yeah. I think it depends on whether you're hunting elk or mule deer for sure. I mean, mule deer, you know, where you obviously can probably get the entire load out in one go in a, with a mule deer on a packed frame, you might want to carry the pack with you. Something like an elk, you know, obviously you're not going to get that out in one trip, you know, and like you said, depending on how far you are from camp, you know, you could always go ahead and quarter the animal up, get it hung up, get it airing out, take the tenderloins in the bag in a trash bag and pack them down to get the frame to pack the rest of the meat with. So, you know, it's kind of variable on how you're hunting and where you're hunting and what species you're hunting, in my opinion. Uh, Ian from YouTube, did you ever end up making the second bow you were working on? No, I have all the materials sitting on my workbench. Then I have a freight or a, an oven that I built to be able to cure the glue and I have the glue, but it's just been so far down on my priority list. My priority list is my to-do list is never <laughs> empty. There's always things getting added to it before I can clear it out. And it's just always, it's been such a low priority, especially since I got that RK one that I don't know if I'll ever actually get around to it. River Valley outdoors wants to know, um, or wants you to do a side-by-side comparison of your laser Milwaukee M18 combo against the K drill. He says the laser looks to be a little faster. Yeah. So this is an ice fishing question. The laser uh, bit is a little bit heavier of an auger, but it's got a different pitch. So when you attach it to a power drill and you punch your holes through the ice, it works a little bit differently than the K drill does. The K drill is a composite construction. So it's a little bit lighter. It's got a center cutting bit and Basically, in a nutshell, um, and I know this because my dad has the K drill and I have the laser, and we have the exact same drill that was bought at the exact same time and the exact same sale. The laser is faster, the K drill is lighter, and the K drill has um, the ability to cut overlapping holes because it has that um, that center bit. So it kind of comes down to what you want more. It's like, do you want the speed or do you want the lightweight? Which one is the higher priority? Joseph from YouTube wants to know, how would you use a lineman's belt on a rock climbing harness? I know that I can hook it into the sit drag loops, but would feel more comfortable with them being connected to my body. We kind of hit it on this one a little bit earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, I for sure wouldn't just attach them to the sit drag loops because there's not much connecting the sit drag to the rock harness, at least not the way that I did it in my video. Um, So you you pretty much have to make your own lineman's loops and, and the DIY uh, hunting saddle sit drag video that I have on YouTube. You can get a little bit more information if that's something you're really interested in. C trick 13 wants to know, is there any reason why you switched from fusion to cipher? I had a bunch of stuff from first light and the fusion camo. And then I bought a, a uncle Pagre. I think that's how you pronounce it jacket. And I bought that in the cipher camo. So he was just, I think, curious as to why I didn't stick with fusion. Um, basically it's a, I like both patterns that maybe aren't my favorite overall out of all the hunting patterns, but out of those garments, uh, I feel like cypher is a really good white tail pattern. Cause they, you know, it's the nice neutral colors. I don't feel like you necessarily need the green, especially for a cold weather garment when a lot of stuff's already going to be uh, barren in terms of the trees anyway. So 
that's really the only main difference. I think they're both probably fine. Stevie D one Oh one from YouTube wants to know when you pack in warmer boots, what do you do with the ones you wear in open sweaty boots? Can't help when it comes to smell. There is no better motivation to fill your tag in October than trying to fill them in late season. <laughs> yes. Um, that, is, that is very true. My standards drop tremendously in late season. Um, so yeah, typically I just, I take the boots that I wear in and I just leave them at the base of the tree. Um, for me, it hasn't been worth it to try and do anything else. Um, I don't know if there's anything to it or not. I think we talked about this a little bit in the scent control podcast, but it seems like when it gets really cold, deer don't react to odor as much as they do, uh, when it's warmer out. And I don't know if that's has to do with the thermal energy of the, the scent molecules and, and whatnot, but yeah, I usually don't, I don't worry about it too much. Just play the wind and, and have at it. Yeah. I would think, you know, being the cold weather, uh, the colder air is going to hold your scent down closer to the ground or closer to that particular area. If there's no wind, um, then on a warmer day where, you know, the scent's going to rise basically with the air. Jared from YouTube wants to know how do you pack in all your gear and clothing to your stand he has his layering system down but is getting all of it to the stand without overheating is a pain yeah so I mean with a tree stand as opposed to a saddle when I'm carrying the extra layers it all just gets bungeed to the the pack uh, which is bungeed to the stand so everything's just bungeed to the stand in some way or another and if you have a long way to walk in, like there's just no way of getting around it. If you're getting too hot, you either need to slow down or you need to take a layer off. So if it's really cold and I got a long ways to go, I usually just have like a Merino top and like a windbreaker over the top of that. It's about as light as I can go. If I wear just the Merino, then it, that wind just bites too much. So I need to have that little wind protection layer ideally. Um, but yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta regulate. You just gotta slow down if you need to. And, and just kind of not be afraid to take the stand off your back and take an extra two minutes to either add or remove a layer as you go. And and don't be afraid to walk out to the tree stand in the dark and just your base layers. You might look funny to yourself, but nobody else is going to see you. I think a lot of people will wear their, their hunting pants or a light jacket out there, especially when it's cold compared to just wearing their, you know, 230 gram or whatever it is merino wool base layers to the tree and then start layering up once they get to the tree because when it's really cold that's typically what i'll do is i'll just wear my base layers all the way to the tree when i get to the tree like i said i may take two minutes to just sit there until i start to chill off a little bit and then layer up before i start climbing Mm -hmm. uh Matter Gilly Man from YouTube wants to know if you've ever tried the snap reusable gel warmers. I guess he's caught, talking about the reusable uh, hand warmers. Yeah, those ones that have the little, looks like a, a nickel floating around in the gel, and you, you pop it, and it, it gets hot. It's a chemical type of hand warmer. There's some reason, I mean, I've tried them. My parents had one once, and I went to visit. I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. But there was some reason I didn't like them that much for hunting. I think it was just the overall length of time that they lasted. I don't think it was that long. It seemed like it was something that was made more for you got to soar back and you want to heat it up for a half an hour. Yeah. The ones I've seen and the ones I've kind of used, I mean, I didn't use them for two reasons. The weight, they're drastically heavier than a traditional hand warmer. 
and the like you said the burn time if you will um, the amount of time they generate heat is a lot shorter so to me those are the two big things um, you know and like you mentioned I think they're made for home use where you you pop them at home put them on your knee put them on whatever they burn for 30 minutes and then they're pretty much toast mm-hmm. uh, butter dog zero one from YouTube how do you find your public land uh, so the easiest way would be to buy a subscription from Onyx, um, but there are plenty of free options. Uh, one would be to look at your state's DNR website. A lot of times the state will um, have a list or a map of what land is available to hunt on. And if you look at the state website, if they don't have all the info you're looking for, you can also check the county websites. Sometimes the county websites will have things like tax forfeited land that you're able to hunt on and the state might not have maps of that. So you have to kind of dig into the individual counties. A lot of times what county websites will also have is they'll have their own GIS websites. So if you type in like, I don't know, Scott County GIS in Google, oftentimes county will have a website where they have their own mapping system where you can look at an aerial photo and it'll have all the property lines segmented off and you can just click on whatever parcel you want and get that information for free. The downside is that you have to do a lot of clicking, usually if they don't have the public land highlighted. And then you still might not know if that public land that you find is actually huntable or not. It might be off limits to hunting, even though it's public. Um, so, but I mean, I found the same thing with Onyx. Sometimes they'll have the stuff highlighted that you're not technically allowed to hunt, even though it's state or federally owned. So you'd have to do a little bit of research. Uh, and maybe do some phone calls. A lot of those county GIS maps um, are searchable by um, the owner. So yep. if you can find a piece of public land and it has like whoever owns it, it may be listed as the county owns it or the city owns it um, or, you, you know, USA, however they label public lands in there, then you can search by that landowner and it will show you, a lot of times it will zoom out to the farthest point to show you all of those parcels on the screen basically so that's a good way to locate um the public land in that area yeah that'd be nice that's that definitely beats clicking on all the adjacent parcels to try and find out where exactly the the total boundaries are yeah so mike from youtube wants to know if you ever considered the sika fanatic jacket to eliminate the needs for an external hand muff yeah, so my system right now, I got the Sanctuary bibs, and I have the Woodbury jacket, and then I used an external muff uh, for my hands. So I do like the Fanatic jacket. I've tried it on at Cabela's. Um, I, I like the feel of fleece. It's obviously very quiet. The Fanatic jacket, if I remember right, didn't have a hood, uh, which was a nice feature of the Woodbury. They have, obviously, like hats that are made out of the same material. So, I mean, some of it comes down to one layering system versus the other. Like if I would use a fanatic jacket with first light bibs, it would probably wouldn't work as well as, you know, the first light bibs and the first light jacket. They're all kind of made to mesh within their own systems. Um, but I think that was probably the main thing. And other than that, just the cost difference, I was able to get the, uh, first light stuff at a discount. Whereas, um, Sitka, unless it was also a similar type of sale, I would have had to pay a lot more, yeah, I like just even like hoodies that have a, a kangaroo pocket on them. I like being able to put my hands in them. So to me, 
it's really interesting to see the Fanatic jacket have something like that. Um, I wish more companies would offer that, even in just lightweight, uh, like merino hoodies, just because I hate gloves. I just want to stick my hands in there to keep the sun off of them or to keep my hands just a little bit warm. So to me, it's a really interesting idea. Um, I'm just not a fan of Sitka products, personally. Uh, YouTube. Abby wants to know if you think the rope mod would work on the XOP climbing sticks. So essentially any type of stick that has a, a button type of attachment system where you're putting a loop over a button most likely is going to work with the rope mod. Your variables will be what diameter rope is going to work the best. So for something like a lone wolf stick, usually like five sixteenths inch am steel or like eight millimeter accessory cord seems to work pretty well, but that might be different on the XOP. It might be different on some kind of mod that you do yourself. Like if you're adding custom versus buttons to like a Hawk stick that doesn't come with them. Um, so that's kind of your biggest variable. Usually it'll work. You just got to find out the right sizes for everything. Yeah. I've have no experience with the XOP climbing sticks. I've, I don't know. I've seen one in person. I think that's about it. Yeah. Um, I, th I think their button isn't totally round. I think it's like a, an abbreviated button. So yeah, that like might affect the, it a little the bit. The sides but, are cut off on yeah. it or the top, one of the two are cut off. So it's very oval shape, if you will. Most likely somebody's already tried it and it's probably on the internet somewhere. Internet is a vast information of some knowledge and a lot of BS. <laughs> you just have to wade through a lot to find the good stuff. Yep. That'll do it for this episode. Keep those questions coming, and at some point we'll be able to put another one of these types of podcasts together. Special thanks to Arrow Hunter for helping make this podcast happen. Go check out the new Kite Saddle in addition to the Kestrel at arrowhunter.us. Subscribe to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network wherever you download your podcasts, and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>